Hey everyone, this is Eliza D, and welcome back for another episode of How to Save the Planet, a show where we interview people who have jobs in climate change or environment. Now, let's get started. With us today, we have Dr. Joe Casula. Joe has worked on issues related to climate science and policy for nearly 20 years. His career has focused on translating information about climate variability, climate change, and climate impacts for policymakers, resource managers, and business leaders. Recent accomplishments of Joe's include coordinating the 2017 Northwest Climate Conference and serving as an author for the Fourth National Climate Assessment and the and the a, a, a report unfair share, exploring the disproportionate risks from climate change facing Washington state communities. Joe earned his PhD and master's degrees in atmospheric sciences from the University of Washington, where his research research examined the response of snowpack in the Cascades to rising temperatures. He also holds a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Duke University. Joe's past Oppositions include Deputy Director at the University of Washington's Climate Impacts Group, Adjunct Faculty at George Mason University, Staff Scientist and Program Director for Science and Impacts at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, Senior Associate at ISF International, and Postdoctoral Fellow at the National Research Research Council. Hello and welcome, Joe, to How to Save the Planet. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. Yes, thank you for coming. So can you tell me what you do and where you work? Sure, Um, so I uh, teach courses on climate science and climate policy at uh, at the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder, and uh, I teach within uh, their Masters of the Environment program. Cool, how long have have you been at University of, of Colorado? Uh, actually, pretty recently that I started here, um, uh, really about, I guess about six-ish, eight-ish months, depending on when when I, oh, cool. I kind of started working on the courses. That's that's super neat. Do you like it? Yeah, yeah, it's a really um, uh, great program where they're they're trying to kind of train the next generation of of environmental policy and environmental planning uh, folks and the students that are in the program are really passionate and uh, a lot of them have cool work experiences that that kind of brought them to to this point and got them interested in getting more more uh, school training and so it's it's been a a very neat place to to work unfortunately because of covid i haven't gotten a chance to meet people in person um you know most of it's been through zoom so i look forward to hopefully in 2021 actually getting to meet some more of the faculty and more of the students in person and not just not just through the computer screen yeah i bet that'll be nice (laughs) would you recommend a University of Colorado for students who want to go into like environmental policy or um, climate sciences? Yeah, it's a great place. I mean, there's lots of great places to to study um, things related to climate, sustainability, environmental work. But University of Colorado is, I think, one of the the top spots. Um, They have, if you want to do kind of more of an academic route and do research stuff, the, the environmental 
uh, science program is really strong. If you want to do, uh, you know, my program, which is a little bit more professional focused, um, that has a lot of opportunities for people to, to kind of partner with um, communities and, and businesses and all sorts of groups where you get real world experience. And then there's just a ton of research in the region. The National Center for Atmospheric Research is here in Boulder. And so that's kind of like the the mothership of climate work, one of them in the country. And then the National Renewable Energy Lab is in um, Golden, where I live. And that's also a hub of doing renewable energy research and, uh, and all sorts of like energy efficiency stuff. And so th there's a, we're, we're lucky. We're in a real hotbed, mm -hmm. I think, of, of, uh, of, of opportunity and, and, and of learning, uh, both at the University of Colorado and, and some of these other spots nearby. Cool. That sounds like a really great school and place to be. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm, I'm fortunate to be here. Yeah. What got you interested in environmental policy and climate science? Um, it actually started when I was in college. Um, I had a summer job where I was helping a professor put together a course on global environmental change. And um, he had me reading a bunch of just material that he wanted to put into the curriculum. And um, some of that was about climate change. And it was the first time I'd ever read about climate change or learned about it. And it was just really fascinating because it, it was clearly a, a just enormous challenge um, that, you know, our use of energy, which is kind of everywhere, is, is causing this, this problem, this threat to our ecosystems and our health and, and our infrastructure and our, our culture and our way of life. So it was, it was just a massive kind of challenge. And I think that was fascinating because it, I, I, you know, it's like if you saw a dinosaur, you know, it's like the biggest <laughs> thing, you know, you can imagine. And the other part that was interesting as a science, uh, I was um, working on uh, a degree in chemistry for my undergrad. And as a scientist, I think it was really, or a budding scientist, it was really fascinating because it was a field that that people from all different backgrounds were getting involved in. Chemists, physicists, computer scientists, biologists, and now even broader, you know, sociologists and people in law and medicine. And so it, it because climate change touches all of these different um, kind of areas of knowledge and things that we care about, the, the number of kind of researchers and experts working on it is, is kind of amazing. It's this kind of collision of all these different, um, you know, perspectives on, uh, and, and ways of knowing. And so I think that's another fascinating thing about it is you, you have all these different uh, disciplines contributing to it and, and none of them really, I think, ha own it. Um, and, and so it's a really interesting kind of problem uh, and, and a, yeah. a great way to collaborate with really, really cool folks who have different backgrounds. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's so fascinating how like climate change, like you said, touches like every aspect, like art, mental health, physical health, like science, so many, like all of these different fields. Absolutely. And that number, you know, from when I was doing it, so that was in the late 90s when I first started reading about it. Um, I think the number of fields was, was still was much smaller than today and it's just grown and grown. And I think that's not going to stop. I think we'll, we'll realize kind of how our lives are connected to the climate is, is um, 
very textured and there's, there's lots of different touch points there. Mm -hmm. Why do you do this, this work that you do? What keeps you going? Um, well, one thing I, I think is that we, um, there's kind of an inevitability of dealing with climate change. We have to, um, whether we, we face it uh, in a way where we're trying to be proactive and plan or whether we, we kind of shrink from it and let it just kind of happen to us and be reactive, we're, we're going to confront climate change. We are, we are right now. And so I think that's kind of a, it's, a motivating factor, the fact that, that this is, it is happening right now, climate change is happening right now, and future climate change is inevitable. And so it, it's just like a, it's an obligation, we have to do something about it. And so I think there's a, a bit of a duty, I guess, if you know something, or, or you can contribute your time. Um, the second part that I think keeps me going is if we think about kind of preparing for the impacts of climate change, or kind of getting away from fossil fuels, like the solutions essentially to climate change. If we do, if we roll those things out appropriately, we actually have an opportunity to deal with some of the other big societal problems that we have of kind of the, the inequities that we have in society between kind of the haves and the have nots, issues with justice that may uh, fall along uh, racial lines or gender lines or, or, or economic lines we have an opportunity the solutions to climate change are also potentially some of the solutions or at least things to help some of those problems too and i think that's that's also exciting in the sense that we can address some of these really big um really thorny institutional issues that have been with us for a long time that that you know our climate solutions have have a way of also being solutions for much more mm -hmm. yeah could you tell us what degrees you have and where you went to school? Yeah, so my undergraduate degree was um, in chemistry, uh, and that is that was from Duke University, which is in North Carolina. And then I did my master's and my PhD in atmospheric science at University of Washington. Cool. Did you like those those colleges? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know. Duke was a great place to, to go to school. I met a lot of cool people who are in all sorts of different fields and have made some great friends from that time. And then graduate school, I think was, you know, the, the exciting part of that was much more the intellectual development um, and being able to work with some top flight scientists uh, at, at UW doing amazing work in, in earth sciences. Uh, and then the, the people I went to or my classmates have, have gone on and become really important and valuable peers. Uh, and, and collaborators in, in uh, kind of the environmental and climate spaces. Cool. How did you get to, to teaching at University of, of Colorado? Well, it's actually kind of a bit of happenstance. Um, I was working at University of Washington uh, in, in a group called the Climate Impacts Group that does a lot of work on the, the imp impacts of climate change in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and so I, I was um, working there and then um, my wife and I had a son and I really wanted to spend more time at home. So I decided to leave work and became a full-time dad. And then my wife had an opportunity to move to Colorado with her job and she's from here originally. So we, since I wasn't working, it became a little easier to, to, to relocate. 
And then after coming here, um, I reached out to some longtime colleagues that were at University of Colorado and said, you know, if, if there's an opportunity to teach part time, I would really love to to do that. And it would fit into my schedule very flexibly. And um, they were really supportive. And so, uh, you know, we talked about it for a few months. And then in the spring of, of this year of 2020, really kind of started to make more concrete plans about it and so then I was able to teach this semester and I also have a, a an online course through University of Colorado uh, through Coursera is the platform but but anybody can go and take that course and um, uh, you can even do all the lectures for free so through through the university I was able to get some cool um, teaching opportunities while still kind of doing my my um, my dad job at home cool that sounds like really nice it's it is I, I really um have it's been a real luxury and i'm very very thankful for the privilege to be at home with uh, with the little guy so it's been been fun and i think it also reinforces some of the reasons why it's important to work on environmental and climate stuff it's it's really his generation and maybe his children's generation that that are going to be experiencing a very very different climate than the one that that i grew up in and that my parents experienced. And so, you know, being able to spend some time with, with um, my kiddo helps reinforce kind of the importance of dealing with, with some of these issues. Yeah. What does climate justice mean to you and your teaching? Yeah, that, that is a great question. So I think um, there's two parts that, that we talk about in, in my classes. Um, and one is, is, I think a recognition that that the people, the individuals in the communities who are most often kind of paying the price uh, of climate impacts are the ones who are kind of least responsible for it. So if you look at, let's say, people who live on in small islands in the Pacific where sea level rise is really threatening, um, you know, their way of life and their home, you know, those were generally not the people who put most of the greenhouse gases up in the atmosphere, right? These are pretty small yeah. communities. Um, similarly, in, in places that may be more, uh, you know, poorer countries or even poorer neighborhoods in, in a rich country like the United States, you know, those folks have not been the ones consuming energy for decades and decades and, and um, you know, consuming lots of other products such that they're, they're not really responsible for a lot of the emissions. And yet when impacts happen, they're the, they're the often uh, most likely to, to suffer. And so I think that's one aspect of justice. And then I think a second aspect is, as we start to think about climate solutions and reducing our fossil fuels, protecting forests and ecosystems, um, you know, preparing communities for flooding and heat wave and, and wildfires and things like that, mm -hmm. to really have an emphasis on those individuals and those neighborhoods and those, those, those groups that are really vulnerable and, and to, to make sure that they're kind of prioritized that, you know, one of the ones I like to talk about is, you know, we, we have a, uh, let's say an incentive for people to have electric vehicles or to get solar panels on their house. That's great. Mm -hmm. However, there's a lot of people who can't access that, right? There's a lot of people who don't own a home. And so to put solar panels on their house, they don't, 
they don't have a home to do that with where or they don't have the decision making right they they're mm-hmm. renting um or maybe they're they're homeless um so that's not something that helps them or maybe they don't they can't afford a car so having an incentive to make a you know knock a few thousand dollars off an electric vehicle is great but it doesn't always help the people who i think we we should be helping first and so i think that's the second aspect of of justice that that we talk about a lot in my course is is how do you to prioritize the uh, those groups that might be vulnerable exposed um, when you're when you're rolling out climate solutions? Mm-hmm. How do you prioritize those groups um, to make them feel the less of the brunt of climate change? Yeah, so I, I think the the key first step is really one of process that we have to. F- those who are making decisions, whether they be in government or in business, that they really have to um, engage with these communities and find out what their priorities are, what they're concerned about. And that's kind of the key first step. It's kind of empowering these groups to be able to kind of chart their own course. And I think that's that's really critical. It can't really just be decided for them because I think that reinforces some of the problems that that are already existing um i think in places where this has been done well i think you see a lot of the solutions start to uh revolve around job security food security uh and appropriate health care and those are all things that can help prepare those individuals in those communities you know better for for heat waves and wildfires and and floods but at the same time it, it makes sure that in many cases, they they have a steady paycheck, they have job security, that they can put food on the table, that if someone gets sick in their family, they're not going to go bankrupt. And so I think those are, you know, those are kind of the nature of a lot of the, the solutions that I think do kind of put these vulnerable or exposed communities kind of first in line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What advice could you give to listeners who want to go into the field of climate change and climate science? That's a great question. So one one I think is to spend a little time, you know, kind of familiarizing yourself with with what the science says about climate change. You know, a lot of what you read in the newspaper online is um, maybe a little incomplete or embellished. And so like trying to get to the actual sources of um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, puts out these reports every five or six years. And they're very technical. But if you can find kind of simpler summaries of those reports are really helpful. The National Climate Assessment came out in 2018 and that summarizes climate change in the United States and that's a little bit more accessible to read. So go to those kind of primary sources and try to familiarize yourself with some of the science um, to ground kind of your, your mm-hmm. where, where you're coming from. Um, the second one I think is just, just talk about it. Talk about climate change. I think what you're doing with this podcast is awesome because so few people in the United States, at least, are, are, are talking about climate change on a regular basis. And, you know, there is a co- small group of people who are really passionate about this. But, but, but by and large, you know, from what we know from surveys and stuff like that, a lot of people don't talk about this on a regular basis. And I think they need to. And I think most importantly, they need to talk about it with people that they, they care about and they trust. So people in your family, people who you're friends with, people who you work with, like have a conversation and it doesn't have to go in, you know, we don't have to convince people. We don't have to change people's minds. It's just talking about it and understanding, 
you know, what, why they're interested in it or why they're not interested in it or, and what you know about it, that sharing is really, really important for kind of the social change that needs to happen. Yeah. And then the third point I'd say is, you know, have, have empathy, you know, that a lot of people maybe don't believe in climate change. I don't actually, I don't want to say a lot. There is a, 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 uh, you know, constituency, there is a group that doesn't in this country and around the world. And, and sometimes I think it's easy to feel self-righteous and we have to like prove them wrong and we have to change their minds. And, and I don't think that's a really effective approach. I think try and just understand why people don't believe in it or what they do care about, what they do, what about the environment they are interested in is a better way to engage than, than to try to steamroll people who, who disagree with you, you know, being tolerant mm -hmm. and, and having some empathy for other people's uh, points of view. Uh, now, now I don't want to go so far as to say like their view on the science is correct, but their opinion about what to do is, is their own. And having some respect and some empathy for that, I think in the long run is going to pay dividends um, to, to achieving the changes that we probably need to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kindness and empathy can, can go a long way. Absolutely. Yeah. So what encouragement or hopeful thoughts could you give our listeners around making a difference in this climate crisis? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's, a, it's tough because we've had, you know, at least at the national scale, even the state level, um, you know, there hasn't been quite as much action as we probably have needed over the last 20 years and, and maybe in the last 10. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of disappointment and cynicism in the climate space. However, I think there are some reasons to really be optimistic or at least cautiously optimistic. Um, one is that a lot of the technologies that we need exist, right? We, we know how to generate electricity without using fossil fuels. You know, the growth in solar and wind has been phenomenal. Um, natural gas has been very effective at, at displacing coal in this country. Um, we may not want to be on natural gas forever and ever, but it's certainly better than coal as an alternative. Um, so we have a lot of technological tools to do these things. We have a lot of information about what future climate change looks like as far as things like mm -hmm. rainfall and temperature that we can use for planning. So we have a lot of the technical tools, and I think that's really, really important to get us started. Second, I think there is a growing grassroots support to, to do more on climate around the world and in this country. And I think that's really exciting. And third, you know, communities and businesses are really, really getting on board with this. You see more big companies talk about how they, they have pretty aggressive climate goals. You have towns and cities and some states making pretty serious pledges about reducing their emissions, about planning for, for future climate impacts. And so all those three things together to me say like, you're kind of at a, at a potentially really good moment um, that the political institutions that have been slow to act, they're not going to have as many excuses coming up in the next five to 10 years. And so I, I think we have a window where, um, you know, we can make some, some big advances in reducing our, our carbon emissions and in better preparing our communities and our businesses for impacts. And so, that's reason for me to be excited, um, even though our track record may not be where we would like it to be. Um, mm -hmm. I, do, I do think that the raw materials are kind of in place for, for some big things to happen. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to How to Save a Little Planet. I oh, really appreciate it. 
thanks so much everyone for joining us today for another episode of how to save the planet see you next time